We open your Bible to Psalm chapter 12. I'm eager to speak to you this morning from Psalm chapter 12. I come with, with good news and glad tidings from our pastor. I talked to him yesterday, and he's recovering well. He sounded strong as a bull, classic MacArthur. Uh, he's going to work three times harder when he gets back, I'm sure, and continue to outrun us all. So uh, grateful for, for good progress uh, for his recovery, and he's, he's doing well. He wanted me to let you know. So uh, that's good news. The Bible in Psalm 12 presents to us, I think, a situation that's worth our consideration this morning in the troubled world in which we live. Psalm 12 is remarkably contemporary, and it's all about words. So let me begin by reading you Psalm 12, and then let's dive into the study to see the message that the Spirit of God has for us through the Word of God today. Psalm 12, for the choir director upon an eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of of men. This is the very word of the living God. Words. You're thinking words right now. We just finished singing words. Words were what met you when you awoke this morning. You heard words. You're hearing me speak words right now. Uh, Perhaps you've already started to jot down some words today and have written some words. And you've read from your Bible today. and, And so you're reading words. And this is our lives surrounded by words. Our world is full of words because this is God's world. He created this world with words, and Christianity has everything to do with words, and redemptive history is a story of words that begins with God, the triune God who exists for all eternity, speaking a world into existence with the power of his words. And if you just begin by thinking about that arching storyline of the Bible, a biblical theology, you could 
consider words to be one of the great and central themes of that large biblical story. Because it was God who spoke and created. It was God who ordered all things by his word. It's God who interprets the existence of everything by his word. It's God's words that enrich and prove and bless and comfort. And it's God's words that warn and judge and teach. In the beginning, God said, let there be. And reality came into existence. The Genesis account says, and there was, and it was so. And as God named all of his creation, those things came into being according to the power of the words of God. And it would be in God's great plan of redemption to rescue his human the human race that was deceived by words in that same garden scene when the slithering serpent came to the, to the crown of God's creation and said, did God really say? It was an assault on words. And so as God's redemption plays out across the pages of our Bible and across human history, The cumulative moment of redemptive history is the coming of the living word of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the one who speaks on behalf of God with the authority of God, the one who is God and is identified as the word of God. And it's Jesus who is described in Hebrews 1.3 as the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. And so a consideration of the biblical message about words finds this arcing story that leads us through something that is so common in our lives, the presence, existence, and use of words. And when we come to Psalm 12, It's in a context of the words that were composed by God's people for his praise and instructed and entrusted to the choir masters to be given to the people for their celebration, for their instruction, for their recounting throughout every generation. And and these words all highlight this same theme of, of God's word going forth in this world. And there are only being two ways to live, right? That's how the Psalms open. With Psalm 1, there's the, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked, that the righteous will walk and be blessed by God and will flourish as they follow his way and his words. And as they meditate on his words, he will be life-giving, soul-reviving kind of words for the righteous and for the wicked who reject his words. Their path is inevitably towards judgment. And the Psalms really do, this first book especially, open along this theme of exploring these Two ways to live, only two paths, one that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. And they're paths that are marked by words. One, the words of the living God, words that are life-giving and healing, and one that is words of the wicked, words that are opposed to God, words that are lies, words that are unrighteous, and will result in final judgment. 
Psalm 2 speaks the kingly words of God in response to these two ways of live and and show that that God's word is this, this fortress, this regal word that has final say in the lives of his people. And, and his word is a refuge to his people. And, and as the Psalms unfold in this first book, you find morning prayers of trust in God and evening prayers of trust in God. The first words spoken and the final words spoken and thought before one goes down to sleep. But these are all woven with the words of the wicked. Psalm 5 speaks of their assaulting words and the hatred and the iniquity and the speaking of falsehood, Psalm 5 verse 6. Psalm 6 is a plea for mercy among all the trouble that the wicked have caused in this world. Psalm 7 is a is a desperate cry for defense against God's people as the wicked surround them and try to drag them away. Psalm 8 is this glorious hymn to the dignity of the crown of God's creation as the people speak how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 9 thanks God for his justice in a world where Injustice is everywhere. Psalm 10 employs the voice of the the godless in asserting that there is no God. And Psalm 11 answers that voice by saying, though the wicked say there is no God, and though, Psalm 11 verse 3, the foundations of society seem to be be destroyed and perhaps it looks like there's nothing the righteous can do, God is still on his throne in his holy temple. He's still with the upright. He's still testing the righteous and the wicked because the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. And that brings us to Psalm 12. Framed by a desperate cry of help at its outset, and a very realistic conclusion at its close. This song is a beautiful piece of chiastic poetry where the first line, the the cry of the psalmist and the description of the faithful vanishing matches that last line of the wicked still continuing on. And then the, the second section of of the empty words of of the wicked and a corrupt culture being described in detail in a way that can only be seen as so contemporary, so relevant in its depiction of the lying society in which the psalmist lives, so correlating to our own society. And then the, the second to the last section that matches that second section in this chiastic shaped Hebrew poem is speaking of the pure words of of Yahweh and the center of this psalm speaks of a promised vindication that is certain and hope-giving. It's really a beautiful song for a grim society marked by moral decline that receives a word from God that assures them and provides them hope. It's a song for us this morning.
If Psalm 10 contains the voice of those who say there is no God and Psalm 11 responds to their threats, Psalm 12 shows that the words of the wicked stand in stark contrast to the words of the living God. Arranged in this beautiful chiastic structure, this song begins with a piercing cry for help, a prayer that's short and direct as it is powerful. And then it shows us a situation whose context is so familiar to us, a situation where the ungodly, the wicked, the lying have the upper hand, and the righteous, the God followers, seem to be disappearing from the face of the earth. The words of the worldly are described in verses 2 through 4 and are countered by a promise from God. And then in verses 6 and 7, at the heart of this song is this beautiful depiction of the word of God. And the promise that no matter what the situation appears to be, no matter who the majority is, there's a time described by God as now, as present, where he will rise up on behalf of his people in their oppression and need. It's a depiction of a battle of verbal qualities. It's a portrait of a war of words, the lies of this world versus the pure, unchanging word of God. Psalm 12 is a song that tells it like it is. That reminds us that the world we live in is is no surprise to our God and shouldn't be a surprise to God's people because we've always lived in a society that is fueled by and filled with lies. But this song provides a contrast with the unassailable trustworthiness of the word of God. And so though this song is is brief, just eight verses, just a few mere lines in Hebrew, very simple in its composition, but beautiful, I'm positive I can stretch it out for an hour, so let's just dive in. Part one. In verse one, let's call it a concise prayer. A concise prayer. And boy, is it concise. Help, Yahweh. That's it. It's brief, isn't it? It's not a fancy prayer. The word help is the same word that the Hebrew Bible uses for save or deliver or help. In Harmon's fine commentary in the Psalms, he says, these are the words that a drowning person would use. Help, Lord. There's no fancy speech here. This is the opposite of the prayer that Jesus warned the Pharisees about, their showy, audacious, verbally lengthy kind of prayer that was really not a prayer at all, but she's intended to draw attention to the prayer. This is a desperate cry for help, and its slender nature reveals how hurt, how dangerous the situation is. This is a prayer that's more like a yelp or a holler. And sometimes this is the perfect prayer that we have in our pocket. The 
prayer of a drowning person. There's not even a pronoun here. It's not even save me, O Yahweh. It's just save Yahweh, help Yahweh. Calling out in the covenant name of God, a desperate cry for help is on the lips of this psalmist. Save and deliver. The best possible beginning. Before he gets into a description of this this lost and lying world, before we understand the nature of the trouble of his enemies, before we see the discouragement that the flood of sin that encircles him brings, his situation is calling out to God for help. A drowning man doesn't say, hear ye, hear ye, my friends, lend me your ears. If thine hast a rope or a boat or whatever thine might have in thy heart, if it be thy will to assist me. <laughs> Tonga Spreading Grounds, it's a new, new thing around here. It's kind of our local attraction. It's a puddle. The vice president was at the puddle on Friday giving a speech, telling California what a good job we were doing with our puddle. And if there was someone in that water unable to swim, I doubt they would think much about the composition of their speech. You would just yell. And that's what the psalmist is doing. Spurgeon sees this as a treasure within the treasury of David. His comment on this brief prayer is this. A short but sweet, suggestive, seasonable, and serviceable prayer. A kind of angel sword to be turned every way and to be used on all occasions. The true prayers that I think need to be on our lips the most, they're not fancy, but they're bold and they're important, are help and thanks. And here we hear David say, help. Why? What does he need help with? In verse one, we see the cause for his distress. Help Yahweh, for the godly person has come to an end, for the faithful ones have vanished from the sons of man. The situation is that David feels like he's in a minority position here, that he's the only one left. He says that the godly person, that's the Hebrew word hasid, which is the adjectival version of the very common Psalms word hased, an attribute of God that speaks of his loyal love, his loving kindness. And so this is a way of, of saying the one who's received God's loyal love, the Hesadim, the, the recipients of, and those who walk in the loyal love of God, those who understand the loyal love of God, the ones who know loving kindness have come to an end. This is the, the situation that Jesus describes in Matthew 5.13 when, when the salt is gone, the, the preservative effect of the righteous in society is so diminished that the rot is on. And so David says the godly person has come to an end. There's a disappearance of the righteous. They're they're outnumbered. He he says it in a synonymous way, using another word for the the ones who hold on to the faithfulness of God. The faithful ones have vanished from the sons of Adam. 
Among the human race, David says, there's no more righteous people. And, and from the superscription, we don't have any information. We see that this was entrusted to the choir director, that it was on the eighth, whatever that is, could be an eight-string instrument, could be a, some kind of metric uh, musical notation. It just says eighth. And then it just says a song of David. No word to the circumstances. Is this when he's hounded by Saul? Is this when he's betrayed by his son Absalom? Is he in the wilderness? Is he in the palace? We don't know, but he's in despair because he's aware that the whole world seems to have completely lost its mind and godly people are nowhere to be found. Does that sound familiar to you at all? That's where David is at because the faithful ones have vanished. The godly person has come to an end. Those who have received Yahweh's loving kindness and covenant, those who understand the faithfulness of God are crying out to God in an arrow-like prayer, like Nehemiah's prayer before Artaxerxes, just a shot-out prayer that says, help us, because we're surrounded. That's the concise prayer, verse 1. Verse two through four, we see a corrupt society. And really the observation is twofold. Verse one has told us who isn't there. The faithful, the godly, they're gone. But verse two tells us what is there. What is in the place of the godly? What is society filled with? And what we see is a depiction in verses two through four of a corrupt society. And I think the contemporaneity of this depiction is even more relevant to us. Verse two, they speak, the Hebrew says, emptiness. That word emptiness, usually translated lies, is the opposite of the Hebrew word kabod, which is weight or glory. Substance and significance is, is glory. The opposite of glory is is emptiness, vanity, lies. And David just says, they speak lies, emptiness, insincerity. There's no boundaries on their empty talk. It's, it's talk without substance. It's talk without foundation. It's talk without facts. The society is characterized by untruth, by empty talk, by a lack of substance, a lack of veracity. It's emptiness, it's lies, all of it. He shows us how pervasive it is by saying, they speak lies, verse two, each one, and then just how vile this empty lying is by showing us that it's without regard for who is being lied to. It says they speak empty lies, each one with his neighbor. That close relationship, that protective relationship that we're to have with our neighbors is violated by this pervasive, indiscriminate, empty speech. lies. There's more though, because these lies are accompanied by something and it's 
Another Hebrew metaphor here, they speak with a lip of smoothness. Now, to our ears, that sounds like chapstick. Or in L.A., injections. But that's not what's happening here. Lip of smoothness is a Hebrew metaphor that speaks of of flattery. And the Proverbs, which is a a guidebook to human speech and the outworking of, of the way that God built this world, the Proverbs speak constantly of the importance of speech that's appropriate, speech that's truthful. It condemns verbal sins like gossip and slander. It reminds us that those kinds of sins that come from our mouths destroy relationships and make them very difficult to rebuild. Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, philosopher, theologian, what a combo. In his pensée, his his collection of various sayings, says this about the verbal sins that characterize our society. He said, I set this down as a fact that if all men knew what each said of the other, there would not be four friends in the world. Ouch. That humor just underlines the fact that hurtful speech is a destroyer of human relationships. And though we're well aware of slanderous speech, and we're keenly aware of the destructive power of gossip, if we've read our Bibles, flattery sometimes gets a pass. But David includes it right on the the back of empty lies, these falsehoods that he's concerned about. Flattering lips are David's concern, this form of dishonesty that is under-considered in our world. It's a poisonous form of encouragement, flattery. If gossip is what you would never say to someone's face that you'll readily say behind their back, then flattery is what you would never say behind their back, but you willingly say to their face because you don't mean it. Proverbs 29.5 says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Proverbs 28.23. Proverbs 26.28 connects lying and flattery as we see connected here in in Psalm 12. Proverbs 26.28 says, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin." Flattery is this kind of dishonesty that sounds positive because it's a smooth and slippery sort of speech intended to beguile its recipient with something that's just not true. It's not real encouragement. It drips with praise, but the heart of it is poisonous. Hugh Black, writing long ago, said the flatterer will take good care not to offend our susceptibilities by too many shocks of wholesome truth-telling. That's why the Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. But flattery or speaking with a lip of smoothness is in conjunction with the lies, the empty talk, the flattery, and then thirdly, as this society is depicted 
with such relevancy, there's a deception to it. It says with, the NAS says, with a double heart they speak. The Hebrew says, with heart and heart they keep speaking. That's a strange phrase, right? Heart and heart. Double-heartedness. We don't use that expression in English. We say double-faced. And part of understanding what it means to be double-hearted, or as we would say double-faced, is to think about how the Hebrew conception of the heart worked. Valentine's Day is coming up. At least they were putting stuff up at Target three months ago, so I assume it's almost here. So... Kids will be cutting paper hearts out in school. Boxes of chocolates shaped like hearts. Valentine's Day is a a time that is symbolized by the heart. And we think of the heart as, as affection, as love. Well, the Hebrew conception of the heart is not merely that. It's it's more like what we say when we say, I've made up my mind, or I'm of a certain mind. The heart in Hebrew has to do with the volition, the will, the the truest intentions of a person, not just their affection. And so this idea of double-heartedness presented in verse 2 with a heart and heart they keep speaking takes the empty lies and the smooth, flattering lips and shows what's underneath the surface, which is two-facedness, double-facedness. The smooth lips and the flattering lies have at their heart a motive that is looking like one heart but is actually another heart. It's a kind of brokenness and lack of integrity inside of a person, a kind of duplicity, a kind of double-speak and double-mindedness and double-facedness that's deadly. That's why the Old Testament often speaks of the singularness of the heart. In First Chronicles 12, 50,000 soldiers come up to support David, and the text describes them as men who are single-hearted in their purpose of supporting David and fighting for David. Jeremiah 32, 39, God promises, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. A single-heartedness is a single-mindedness, an integrity of what's on the inside matches what's on the outside. And so the lying society is depicted by an absence of the godly and by these three things being present in society. Empty talk with no substance, lies, flattery, the smooth talk of the flatterer, and deception, a double-heartedness. And each one is pervasive and dangerous and poisonous. The corrupt society's depiction continues in verse 3 as David can't hold off any longer before once again requesting that the Lord would intervene. May Yahweh, may Yahweh cut off all smooth talkers. The tongue making boastful claims. He's asking Yahweh to draw a sword and to cut off smooth lips and boastful tongues. Now, this is another figure of speech, isn't it? A violent one. Synecdoche. It's where the part represents the whole. 
When the captain says, all hands on deck, he doesn't mean just your fingers, palms, and wrists. The whole, the whole person, pirate or sailor, whatever, is supposed to come. When I say, lend me your ears, I don't want you to remove them. I want you to listen. When I say I'm going to hit the pillow, I'm not punching. I'm going to, the whole bed is, is, you know, at least my half, will be mine. It's part of the, the part representing the whole. When we say uh, the, the Pentagon said in a statement, we're talking about that building that represents the larger part of the armed forces, right? Synecdoche, it's a, it's a poetic device. Here, David is praying that Yahweh would cut off smooth lips and chop off boastful tongues, tongues that speak of great things. Listen, this isn't just lips and tongues getting cut off. This is those who lie and those who flatter and those who deceive being cut off by God's judgment and righteous indignation. A boastful tongue and a smooth talker is going to lose a whole lot more than their lips and their tongue when God's judgment comes to them. It will be entire. The depiction of this sinful society continues in verse four, who have said, and here's their philosophy, here's the unbeliever's philosophy, with our tongue we will prevail Our lips are with us or are our own. Who is master over us? Two assertions in verse four. By the wicked in this society of lies. They say one assertion is victory. With our tongue we will prevail. They've decided that the answer to their lies is to heap more lies on top of them. And they've said that the reason they can do that is not just the assertion of victory, but the assertion of autonomy. Our lips are ours. Who is master over me? No one's in charge of me. I can say whatever I want without repercussion, without consequence. Does this sound familiar to you yet? Does this sound like the world in which we live? Is there a single arena of life that is not covered, infused, and poisoned with lies? advertisement all around us is lying to us. This isn't just now. This has always been this way. I found an ad for, uh, from 18-something for Dr. Batty, and it's got a guy with a bow tie on and a, a handsome mustache, and he looks reliable. He must be Dr. Batty, and underneath it, it says, for your health, asthma cigarettes. This was an ad. They sold these at the pharmacy in 1882 for the temporary relief of paroxysms of asthma. The ad says, effectively treats asthma, hay fever, foul breath, all diseases of the throat, head colds, canker sores, bronchial irritations. And then underneath it says, not recommended for children under six. Advertisements are lies, right? All kinds of them. My phone is always popping up ads, and I understand how the algorithm works, so I'm making fun of myself here, but it says, want to lose 20 pounds in a week? No, I don't want to cut off my hand. And so the advertisers lie and lie and lie. And not just 
not just advertisements. And this isn't just 1868. Just a few years ago, a mom of a four-year-old sued Nutella, the delicious hazelnut chocolate spread, sued the spread, or maybe the company that makes the spread, because they claimed it was part of a nutritious breakfast, and she won in court $3 million. That's a nutritious breakfast. Also, if you ate Nutella... From 2008 to 2012, you're up for a $20 reimbursement, potentially up to $20. So uh, just have your lawyer work on that. I, I don't think it'll be worth it in the end. Advertisements lie. Politicians. <laughs> Do I even have to say it? A congressman with a resume that's totally fake. New York congressman faked his whole resume. Not only did he not go to that college, he didn't graduate from any college. Not only did he not work on those two Wall Street firms, he didn't work at any Wall Street firms. He's just making stuff up. And he's not the only one. An article, there's, there's probably six books written about presidential lies. Six books! Some of our greatest presidents were skillful liars. John Blake writing an article in 2013, entitled, Of Course Presidents Lie, quotes Machiavelli positively, saying, all great leaders must be great pretenders. What a mess. You know that famous line attributed to George Washington? Chopped down his father's cherry tree. I've been to Mount Vernon. I've seen his dentures. It's, it's quite the thing. And what you find out is that great story that you, you grew up, you know, George Washington Chopped down the trees, dad confronted me. He says, I cannot tell a lie. And you're like, oh, where, where is that gone? Now they say I can neither confirm nor deny. Depends on what is, is. George Washington told the truth even if it got him in trouble. What a great leader. The problem is that story is a lie. He never even said that. President Eisenhower, reflecting back on his life, he was part of a cover-up and, and lied to the American public at one point, and later on after his presidency was over, he said it was his greatest regret. President Nixon, in his final trip to France, was speaking to a, a large crowd of, of French people, that's what they have in France, and he, he told them how much he loved the French, loved the culture, how he used to be fluent in the language, uh, he could write and read, and, and he loved French literature, he, he majored in French in college, he goes on to say, he got on the plane and Watergate. All those lies. And then this other lie. Nixon was not a French major. He majored in history. I mean, just lie after lie after lie. Every president has not only lied at some time, but needs to lie to be effective, says Ed Erviak, a former Washington lobbyist, congressional chief of staff, and author of Lying, Cheating, Scum. This is politics, friends. You think the media is better off with their fact-checking? Not even close. It's lies on top of lies. The fact-checkers don't understand the facts. You look to the judicial system. Maybe you find something there. All you see there is, is miscarriages of justice, a contorted view of the truth that's the foundation of a broken legal system. We live in a world that is fueled by lies, a culture that is drenched in lies. Where is God in all of this? 
As the liars say, with our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Well, we get to verse five and point three. And we see a committed God. Where is God in all of this? All these lies, all these assertions of autonomy and and victory of, of evil over righteousness. I'll show you where God is and what difference he makes. Verse five, because of the violence done to the afflicted, because of the groaning that comes from the needy, now I will rise up, says Yahweh. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Wow. There's four words the Psalms use to depict the disenfranchised. Two of them are featured here, but there's four that are used prominently in the Psalms. The first is the Hebrew word for usually translated the oppressed. They all actually occur in Psalm 9 together. The oppressed in Psalm 9 verse 9. The afflicted in Psalm 9 verse 12, sometimes translated the poor or the oppressed. The needy in Psalm 9 18. And the poor in Psalm 9 18. Oppressed, afflicted, needy, poor. All really synonymous words. And when we hear those words, we usually think about them strictly in an economic way, right? It's people that have less than other people. And that's because we've, we've been conditioned to be borderline socialist. These words are not used in a primary economic way in the Psalms. What's being depicted here when we're talking about the afflicted and the needy are not the assertion of someone who's being conned financially suddenly into a psalm that has nothing to do with that. Of course, there is scams, there is scammers, there is, there is liars that are trying to steal your money, sometimes in the name of religion. Christian televangelists, Christian, that are trying to steal and soak up the savings of, of vulnerable people. There's no doubt about that. But what's being depicted here when the, the Psalms talk about the afflicted and the needy and the violence done to them and the groaning of their cry is those who are the righteous, God's people, the same people the Psalms have been talking about from Psalm 1, those who are on the path of righteousness, those who have been redeemed by God, those who are the people of God are the ones that are being afflicted, are the ones that are being lied to. They're the victims of this nasty world that seeks to undermine the truth. That's not to say that those among God's people can't be involved in lies and cover-ups and exploitation. But when we read about the afflicted and the violence done to them in verse 5, and we read about the groaning that comes from the, the sighing of the needy and the intervention of Yahweh on their behalf in verse 5, we're talking about God's people who love the truth and are sick of lies. We're talking about you, friend. We're talking about the people who were liars, Colossians 3, but who have been transformed by the truth and have put off lying speech and love and live for the truth, who worship the truth incarnate. And Yahweh says in verse 5, this is his commitment, now I will rise up, says Yahweh. 
That's a common phrase in the Old Testament to depict the judgment of God in an anthropomorphic kind of a way. God will rise up. It's like he's seated seated on his throne and he rises up to render judgment. It's like he is standing in front of the battle line with all his host of armies beside him and he rises up to engage in battle. That's the, that's the phrase that's common for God's judgment in the Old Testament. And the Psalms love this phrase. Psalm 3, verse 7. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. God's judgment is depicted and lots of people are going to go to the orthodontist. Right? I mean, this is serious judgment from God. Uh, again, we're looking for what does this, this rise up look like? Psalm 7, verse 6. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. The rising up of Yahweh is an act of judgment, an act of intervention, an act of rescue. And it's, it's described in verse 5 as, I will place him who, well, the afflicted, the needy, the godly person, the faithful ones, those small in number, God is on your side. The God of truth is for you and he promises that he will rise up and he will place you in the safety for which he longs. That's the salvation, the help, the deliverance, the rescue that David prayed for in his arrow tiny prayer in verse one. And God speaks of it in the now sense. The now But as we'll come to see in verse 8, the stress, as one author says, is not on the immediacy of the relief, but on the certainty of the word. A committed God can speak of his judgment being certain, so certain that he calls it now because of what we learn in verses 6 and 7. And this is point four, a clean word. If we started with a concise prayer and then saw a depiction of a corrupt society and then heard from a committed God, now point four, a clean word, verses six and seven. And the whole idea here is contrast. And it couldn't be more stark. Verse six. The words of Yahweh are clean. Pure. How pure? Well, like silver refined in an earthly furnace, purified seven times. It's that alloy process. It's that smelting process that metal would go through for purification to to burn it in the fire, in the vessel, so that the impurities and the dross and the things that are not silver or gold would come to the surface and be skimmed off. And then the metal stirred and cooled again. And then reheated in this furnace in this cauldron again so that more impurities, less now, but but still impurities would rise to the surface and be skimmed off and then cooled and turned and 
and heat it again and again, a process for the point of perfection, of completion in in Hebrew terminology, seven times purified so that there is no dross, no impurity. The emphasis as God's word is presented at the heart and center of this situation, a, a, a circumstance that looks like it's all lies all the time. Here we have set in the middle of it the promise of God, and that promise is equated to be a pure word. It could have been described in so many different ways. It could be a powerful word. It could be a provocative word. It could be an authoritative word. But the psalmist wants you to think pure. Why pure? Because the words of the enemies are so impure. All dross, all impurity, all imperfection, all deception, all corruption, and then the word of God, no dross, no impurity, just his pure word, no deception, no corruption. His word is utterly, absolutely reliable. It's the opposite of what we encounter in this world. And so what he highlights is the authenticity and integrity of God's holy, pure word. As Silver refined seven times. This is the beginning point of our bibliology. God has spoken, and when God speaks, his word is truthful, it's dependable, it's reliable. Psalm 19 depicts this so beautifully when it says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. More desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and keeping them, there is great reward. This is the doctrine of inerrancy, the doctrine of infallibility of God's word. I think sometimes people hear infallibility or inerrancy and they think, you know, God wrote with perfect grammar the commas were all in the right place. Kate Turabian was footnoted. Everything was... That, that's not primarily what the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility is all about. It's, it's all about the Bible contains no error. There's nothing here that can deceive you. There's nothing here that you can't trust. There's nothing here that God has revealed that could ever lead you astray. Ignorant and uh, false teachers, we're warned about them in 2 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3. They will twist and contort God's pure word, but God's word is not, there's no contortion in it. There's no impurity in it. There's no defilement in it. It is fully trustworthy in contrast to the society and the world in which we live. The Bible is so precious and dear to the believer because it's pure and trustworthy. Second Peter or 1 Peter 2, the pure milk of the word brings us to a place of growth. And so all around us is chaos and lies. But here, 
promising our deliverance, answering our brief, helpless prayer is this pure word that can be trusted. A clean word. Verse seven, it continues, you, Yahweh, will keep us. You could translate that, us. You will preserve us from, and the Hebrew strange here, the generation this. You could translate it, from this generation forever. It's a promise of preservation by God's pure word, by God's good promise. He will preserve us, protect us, and keep us from this generation this. I think because of the, the context of this passage, he's saying, This is what you're going to be preserved from. How bad is it? How rotten is society? How corrupt is it? How untrue is it? How dirty? How defiling? It's this, this, this that you'll be kept from. You'll be preserved. And though everyone's seeking to fool you and lie to you and undermine you, God will protect you, preserve you, and keep you. Luther translates this as, his amen people, his amen word. This is his word that we can say amen to because it's true, it's trustworthy, it's pure, it's clean. It doesn't deceive. It tells us who God is and what he's done and what his will for our lives is. How sweet it is to have the word of God to lead us and guide us and teach us and preserve us, and save us, and protect us. A final point, verse eight, a continued paradox. Verses six and seven, a clean word. Verses, verse eight is a continued paradox. Like so many psalms, it ends without that easy resolution that we long for. Verse eight says, all around the wicked go to and fro. I like what the NASB says there. They strut. That's a peacock word, isn't it? The wicked are, they heard this sermon, and you know what? They do not care. They're still going to keep strutting and keep lying and keep deceiving and keep flattering and keep empty talk and keep double-faced. All around the wicked go to and fro. They're still strutting. And then it concludes with this line, when vileness or worthlessness is exalted among the sons of Adam. Closing this song with that same sons of man that we heard in verse one, being a perfect kind of parenthesis on this whole situation, reminding us that though God's word is promised with this word, now I will rise up, we continue to live in tension, in a paradox. There's rampant evil all around us and continuingly there will be Jesus says, when iniquity abounds, the love of many will grow cold. Matthew 24, 12. This is the world. This is the tension. This is the paradox in which we live in a lying society. But God's word is still sure, more sure. His promise of judgment is sure. His promise of salvation is sure. The gospel is true. And the theology of God's words continues on all the way into the eschaton. Because when Jesus comes back, it is that now kind of a word. Again, not the immediacy of the relief, but the certainty of this relief. As we wait for God's now, we know that we have hope because it's certain. 
that no matter how bad this world gets, we're not under any illusions and neither is the psalmist. God has spoken and that's enough for us. And though the situation hasn't changed, truth is still at the highest possible premium. God's people are still scorned. God's enemies are still vile and still strutting all over the earth. We know that God will keep us, preserve us, and save us. Calvin's comment, however small may be the number of the good, let this persuasion be firmly fixed in our minds that God will be their protector and that forever. And so what do we do? Well, the word made flesh has come. And as he entered human history as the God-man and lived perfectly according to God's pure word and kept every word of God and preached every word of God with the authority of God as he spoke his Father's words and his, as the followers of Jesus received his very words, Jesus' words are inseparable from Jesus. And Jesus would say that if you're ashamed of his words, he'll be ashamed of you. And his words last forever because heaven and earth will pass away, but Christ's words remain forever. Matthew 24, 35. Christ's words are the words of eternal life and we dwell and abide in those words. Only those who hear and keep Jesus' words are promised eternal life. John 5, 24. John 8, 47. And those who heard Jesus when he was in his ministry on this earth were amazed at his words. And someday when that trumpet sounds and our Maranatha prayers are answered, Jesus will come back. And his words will be as true then as they are now. And all will give an account for every careless word. And those who built their houses on the word of Christ will have a firm foundation. Those who did not will be destroyed in the storm. And so we trust the word and we preach the word and we wait for the word to come. Father, thank you for your truth. Your scripture is, is truly pure and rich. It enlivens us and opens our eyes and takes our focus off of the headlines that depress us to the horizon of eternity that enthralls us. So God, thank you that we have a sure word, a word more certain that we can live in this fallen world as those who've been rescued from our own lies and the lies of the evil one. Equip us, give us hope. May we be fixed and hanging on every word that comes from your mouth. We need it more than bread, oh God. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus savingly, if you have been trapped by lies, if you've believed the lie, Jesus has come to free you from lies, to give you life and peace and freedom. 
I'd invite you to come to the prayer room right after this service. We'll, we'll be hanging around for a while. My right to your left under those exit signs. There's a room back there. Men and women from our church would love to pray with you, would love to explain to you how you can be saved, how you can be forgiven, how you can live and walk in the truth. And so God, be with us as we go from this place. Grateful that we proclaim the truth. Grateful that we've been freed from the truth in all that we do, whether in word or deed, as your word dwells richly in us. We give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus, through him to God the Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.